Welcome to Great Stakeholder Expectations, a podcast featuring Freshfields, Bruckhouse, Derringer, and FTI. My name is Lisa Bieber, Counsel and Head of Shareholder Engagement and Activism Defense at Freshfields, where I focus on corporate governance and activism defense. I'm joined by three co-hosts. Hi, everyone. My name is Pam Marcocliesi, and I'm a partner here at Freshfields in the Capital Markets and Corporate Governance Group. In addition to helping clients on a whole range of transactional matters, I also advise public and private companies on corporate governance, disclosure, and other related matters. Given the environment in which we find ourselves, my practice has been incredibly active recently, in particular focusing on all sorts of ESG matters, succession planning issues, board refreshment issues, shareholder proposal trends, and considerations that arise as part of shareholder engagement. Hi, I am Pat Tucker, and I lead the M&A and Activism Communications Practice at FTI Consulting. I spend most of my time helping clients figure out how to secure investor support through major transactions and unexpected shareholder challenges. Hi, I'm Gary Mizukowski, a director at FTI Consulting. I advise corporate issuers on M&A and activism with a particular focus on proxy contest, shareholder proposals, and broader corporate governance. In this four-part series, we'll be discussing topics that will influence how companies approach the 2022 investor engagement season and beyond. In the first episode, we'll be discussing trends with ESG, particularly covering the anti-ESG movement, the drivers behind this inflection point for ESG, and how to navigate these currents. The E of ESG reigns the second episode, and we'll dive into the status of the ESG disclosure rules, how companies should think about climate disclosure in the absence or with rules, and how to prepare for potentially significant changes on the horizon. For episode three, we'll move into social issues, the broadest issues with the most reputational risk and the different pressures companies face on these wide-ranging topics. Last but not least, episode four will cover expectations for shareholder activism, new vulnerability points in the calendar, universal proxy, and ESG activism. We look forward to having you join us for all of these important topics. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to start by talking about where we are in the ESG landscape. There's been talk of an ESG backlash with some anti-ESG funds arising, news that some states are permitting officials to blacklist funds that won't invest in energy and guns, and recent news that BlackRock supported less than a quarter of all environmental and social shareholder proposals. What are some of the factors driving these developments? We've reached an interesting turning point in the ESG movement. I think the first thing I would call out is the fact that companies have really been working on many of these issues for a long time now. And I think as a result of that, you're seeing both on the company side and on the investor side, the actors are really rationalizing their approaches to some of these issues. And so I think that when people say that there's an anti-ESG movement, I don't think it's necessarily an anti-ESG movement across the board. I think what it is, is investors thinking more critically about what shareholder proposals they want to support, which ones make sense in light of the tremendous progress that companies have been making. And on their side, companies continue to refine their thoughts around these issues and are doing an increasingly good job of understanding what is material to the company, what really matters to them, and better being able to explain it to shareholders. And so that, in turn, is one of the reasons, I think, that has led to uh, 
what people say is a decrease in the, in the support for shareholder proposals. It's not decreasing ESG for ESG's sake, but it's really a recognition that there's a lot of work that's been done. I think another of the reasons that contributed to a decrease in the support of some of the ESG proposals is that the SEC also changed its approach to how it would allow shareholders' proposals to make their way onto the ballot. It essentially made it easier for those shareholders' to, proposals to make it onto the ballot, meaning to say that it made it harder for companies to be able to exclude them from the proxy statement. And that as a result, I think led to an increase in the number of proposals on the ballot that were perhaps perceived by shareholders to be of lesser quality, meaning to say that some of them maybe went a little bit beyond what investors thought was reasonable. Some of them were described as micromanaging. I think there was just this general sentiment that there were proposals that just went a step too far. And perhaps those are the ones that in prior proxy seasons would have been excluded from the shareholder ballot altogether. And so I think that is what is, those are some of the main factors, in my view at least, that are leading to the decrease in the number of shareholder proposals that got support. But I don't think that that means that it's a wholesale movement away from ESG. I would jump in and I, I agree with with everything that's been said. And I think it's it's always helpful to take a step back and look at what, what caused ESG as a movement to begin with. Um, it's this real you know, popular term that I think sometimes hides um, the fundamental trends uh, that we're seeing. And, and I think of ESG as a reflection of, you know, what we call sometimes a stakeholder capitalism. It's a, it's a movement to hold companies accountable for measures beyond just financial. And in many ways, when you start to then look at the politicization of ESG, which, which I'm sure we'll continue to talk about, the progressive left was kind of the first to recognize that the proxy and shareholder proposals were a lever to put forth and to reflect what this stakeholder capitalism movement was doing. In a lot of ways, what we're seeing here is kind of conservative right waking up to this fight over the proper role of a company in society and viewing the proxy as a way to put forth their own agenda. So it's not always necessarily the most welcoming view of where ESG is going, um, that it's going to become more contentious like our uh, broader society. But instead of an overall ESG backlash, I think it's important to view it in the broader context of what we're seeing everywhere um, in society and how the company's role is being relitigated in many ways. I totally agree with that, Pat. And I guess what I would add to that is that if you, again, taking a step back and just go back to thinking about the society in which we live, there are um, many of these issues where people are very much split on how they come out on them. And so it's not surprising that you're starting to see kind of the other side of the agenda emerge. And that's happening at the company level, of course, but it's also happening at the investor level. And investors thinking about their own constituencies and you know their own investors and how they may not necessarily be of a homogeneous view either. And so I think that when you put all of this together, it's it's unsurprising that the views on ESG are not completely uniform and that you're seeing the other side of the coin. I guess, Lisa, what would be your views on this as you think about kind of the political landscape and its impact on ESG? How is it translating in terms of impact on shareholder proposals and shareholder engagements and company expectations more broadly? I mean, I think you've seen an era in which shareholder proposals are increasingly politicized. And Pam and Pat, you had alluded to this earlier, and an era where 
shareholder proposals have never really been solely about a shareholder acting for the company. There have for a long period of time been a view that shareholder proposals are a way to move a company socially and politically to an area that a shareholder deems more social or political in the in the vein that they would like to see the company move. And so I think you've seen increasing pressure on that in an era where shareholder proposals are just another venue through which you can have political activism, and I use activism with a little a because I know we'll also talk about shareholder activism, but where you can see some political activism and political dynamism and also social activism and social dynamism through this conduit of shareholder proposals that request that companies act in certain ways or cease acting in certain ways, but also get sometimes significant attention through mainstream media. And it's another way to bring attention to those types of causes through the conduit of shareholder proposals. Yeah, and, and I think about you know, you know what do we expect to see here as as ESG um, becomes more politicized. I think there's two ways to think about the political attacks we see on ESG. The first is is the inbound impact to companies. I think the reality is with the SEC continuing to lower the bar of shareholder proposals that make it to the ballot, you're going to see more proposals and proposals of a, a increasingly different types of flavor. You're going to see possibly, you know, this season with the the ruling on abortion over the over the summer, you could very well see proposals pushing on two different angles of abortion, you know, upholding the law or protecting women's health care. Both of those could theoretically land on the ballot pushing on different ways. So I think that is going to be a challenge for companies as they really view um, and have to deal with the the idea of the the company ballot box as a way to exert political views on an organization. The second, and I think one that the people need to pay attention to, it turns away from the company and more on the investor reactions. As we all know, the the investor base has been increasingly consolidated. Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, these funds are major influencers of where. Um, the governance world moves and how it thinks, they are also very much under increasing political scrutiny. If Republicans take back the House and or the Senate in the fall, ESG is, is a very you know important topic to them and it will be high on their agenda. And I think you should expect to see those funds and the leaders of those funds called in front of Congress. That will create very real business and political pressure on those bodies. I think you would you should see and expect to see their policies narrow a bit. Um, I think their articulation of, of what they're doing and why they're doing it will start to be more actively disclosed. You saw already saw that with BlackRock and its discussion on um, environmental policies uh, this year. I think you're going to see that across a lot of the funds and across more issues. The other, though, is I don't expect them, I think there's a lesson that could be overlearned here, don't expect them to run away. BlackRock it still supported a whole host of climate-related proposals this year. There's a risk here of, of reading headlines and assuming that this movement is, is moving um, to the trash bin. It is seeing a new wave of pressure, but I think there are kind of long-term forces here and a, a strong business rationale that these funds have built that will not necessarily just waver under this. But it is important as you look at assessing investor voting on shareholder proposals to include in your calculus the pressures that they will be feeling uh, themselves uh, across the political spectrum. Well, maybe one thing, Pat, that I would add to that, because I completely agree with everything you said, and that's this idea that 
ESG sometimes kind of gets a runaway reputation and it just seems like it's a standalone thing, but really at its core, and I think what both sides have really been trying to sharpen the focus on is what is fundamentally material. And they think that even if the quote unquote fad of ESG maybe is under some amount of pressure, the fundamental issues of what is material and how they may tie to ESG, that remains. And I think those risks that are really present for companies, the focus on that, I don't think people, companies should expect for that to go away because for many of these companies, the things that are being focused on are things that are core to what they are up to. And so I completely agree with your takeaway that people should not assume that this is disappearing. It's not because so much of it has really been focusing on what is core or critical to these companies. And so I think companies, if you think about what companies really should be focusing on, I think that they really, and I think companies have been doing this for a while now, but really need to think about these kinds of issues in terms of what is core and critical to them. And that's where the focus should be. And that's where the engagement and the messaging should be. Yeah, that's a, it's a great segue because I think we should really think about here, Gary, like how, how do you advise companies to navigate these trends? You know, how do these mission-driven companies in particular adapt to this shifting environment? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think there's kind of two points that I look at it and are, are kind of related. You know, Pam touched on the idea of core and, and mission critical to a company. And I think most of the proposal is going to press on a relationship between a company and one of its stakeholder groups, you know, whether that's the environment, employees, the community around them. That's what these proposals are going to press on. And, and so companies really need to have a good understanding of stakeholder priorities, which, as we know, can change very quickly. And it's kind of related to what Pam was talking about in terms of, you know, the core mission and materiality, right? If you have a good understanding of your stakeholder expectations, your stakeholder priorities, and what's core to your business, then you'll have a good understanding of really what's material to your business, what's going to drive shareholder value, mitigate ESG risk, and take advantage of, of those opportunities, right? Um, the proposals that aren't grounded in materiality have a much smaller chance of passing and seeing shareholder support. So I think from a proposal front, it's really a combination of you know understanding what is material to your business and having an understanding of your stakeholders' priorities. Beyond the proposal front, I think, you know, there's a legitimate argument in a lot of cases for companies not to want to take a stance on certain issues and avoid negative press or avoid media attention. On the flip side, though, that can, depending upon the industry we're talking about and the stakeholder group, that can really, you know, a company's silence can speak more than, than they'd intend it to. And so it kind of goes back to this idea. You can picture retailers, for example, and, and not taking a stance on a certain issue that their consumers care about can materially impact the business's prospects, right? And so it really goes back to this idea of understanding your stakeholder expectations and navigating these trends is always going to be a balancing act. And the only way you can find that right balance is by being in tune with your stakeholders. And so off of that, you know, we kind of touched on this ESG proposals, taking a a step back this year in terms of support, but what do we think the future is for shareholder proposals? In, I think Pat touched on it earlier when he talked about the reproductive rights proposals, at least for the 2023 season. You know, this year there were a couple of reproductive rights proposals, and there have been the last couple of seasons. But with the timing of shareholder proposals, there were such significant developments in the first and second quarter of this year, Russia, Ukraine, inflation, Supreme Court decisions, shifting economic winds, 
all of which you would normally expect to see as topics for shareholder proposals, um, because we've seen, as we've discussed through this entire um, discussion, that some of these or many of these topics find their way into shareholder proposals when they are larger societal issues. And so with the timing of shareholder proposals, we didn't see any of that because all of the shareholder proposals pretty much for a calendar year end company had to be in before the end of the calendar year, which meant that any of these developments were not reflected, but were certainly in the back of investor minds as they were thinking about their voting decisions for this year, particularly on some of the ESG or particularly the environmental proposals with some of the pressures that we saw with access to uh, natural resources as a result of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And so the expectation is that we're, there's going to be kind of a reverberation effect that captures all of these different ideas in the next season. So this season might have been perceived as a little sleepier or that certain proposals received less majority support. But I think that's not a long-term trend in that companies really should be prepared to see a lot, a wider variety of proposals and much more passion on the side of proponents as well as investors in terms of figuring out what proposals to support and how to engage on these issues. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, I'll, I'll try and end on, on a pot, upbeat note, but I'll start with a negative note. Um, I think in the, in the near term, it's a lot more noise. Um, there's an increasing awareness of the corporate ballot box as a way to express your political views. And there's a lowering of the walls by the SEC to allow for those voices to come in. So it's going to get weirder and harder before it gets better. I think that really demands a closer collaboration of exactly what, what we're doing here on this podcast between legal and communications teams. Because when you think about what's happening here from the broader standpoint, it is a combination of a company's legal process, but also its reputational um, and communications risk. Um, we'll, and, and honestly, that collaboration will go a long way of helping both the board and the management and the company itself uh, in operating its business. Longer term, trying to look for the positive uh, silver lining here. I do think there's going to be a rationalization of investor expectations now that we you have more clearly defined pressure on, on what you would call both sides of the issues that will drive down support for proposals not reflective of reasonable uh, material uh, efforts for the company. And that will help drive some clarity on exactly how to uh, manage this issue and what to expect in terms of if these proposals will get support from investors. It's going to get, get harder before it gets better, but I do think this pain will ultimately drive us to a, a better outcome and a more rational approach to the uh, company ballot box. Thank you for joining episode one of Great Stakeholder Expectations featuring Pam Mark Gliese and Lisa Bieber of Freshfields and Pat Tucker and Garrett Musikowski of FTI.